Okay, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, as we continue to plot our way through Matthew's gospel, we've entered chapters 8 and 9, where Matthew switches from recording the words of Jesus to the works of Jesus. Specifically, he tells us of nine miracles Jesus performed, mostly healings. And up to bat today is the third one, which would be the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, who was laid out sick with a fever. Now, I don't know if this is God's sense of humor, but the irony was not lost on me as I was supposed to preach this passage last Sunday, but I was prevented by my own sickness. I didn't have the benefit of Jesus coming to my house to heal me, which would have been nice. Last Sunday, I had whatever bug that's been going around taking everybody out. Looks like it's still taking a good number of people out. I think it's funny how two Sundays ago, Don was up here with his raspy voice saying he's no longer contagious. (laughs) And the following evening, we had a a four-hour elder meeting with the four of us. And what do you know, after that, Rod, myself, Chris, we all got sick. (laughs) Anyway, thankfully, a little sore throat came and went pretty quickly. But it just decided to take up residence in my lungs. So I'm I'm hyped up on all sorts of cough suppressants right now. You could just pray that they work and do their job so we don't have to throw the towel in early on this message. I say that to ask for your patience and mitigate your expectations. Sometimes it's it's good to lower expectations. Speaking of which, as you know, expectations are a powerful thing. Especially when you set them too high, you're just asking for disappointment or worse yet, disillusionment. That's why a lot of people have trouble and disappointment on vacations. They set these sky-high expectations. This vacation is going to be their their me time. It's all enjoyment, all fun. But with travel involved, a lot can go wrong. There can be plenty of hardships, and if you're not careful with your expectations, you can turn your own dream vacation into a nightmare. A couple months ago, I visited our missionaries in Spain, which Chris was talking about this morning, and I was able to take our 10-year-old daughter with me on the trip, But I was very careful to tell her beforehand that this was not a vacation. This was a ministry trip. Our our time was not our own. uh, I was there just to preach, to minister, to encourage. We would not have a lot of freedom to do the things we wanted to do, a lot of sightseeing, maybe a little bit of time, but I wanted to set that straight to avoid disappointment. I'm glad I did because we did have some of our own hardships like having to sprint through the airport in Amsterdam like crazy people to losing our luggage in Madrid. But it didn't get us down, and we were able to turn those into fun memories. But I trust you know, and maybe you've learned the hard way, that expectations matter. You need to set them right. So with this in mind, let me ask you, what are your expectations in following Christ? When it comes to Christianity, What do you expect as it pertains to your life? What's in it for you? What do you hope to get out of this? Why are you here? Why are you doing all this? Perhaps what comes to your mind is something spiritual. By faith in Jesus, you hope to gain the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. That's why Jesus came, right? 1 Corinthians 15.3 says that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. So, Shouldn't our expectations be married to the reason Jesus came? Seems to make sense. So as Jesus was offered once to bear the sins of many, Hebrews 9.28, so you expect forgiveness of sins from him and spiritual blessings. However, there are some Christians, really talking about millions of people, 
who have a drastically different set of expectations in following Jesus. They have much more, you could say, physical or material expectations. Primarily, I'm talking about the health and wealth movement or the prosperity gospel movement. According to these movements, why did Jesus come? He came to bring us life, but that life is less about eternal life and more about material prosperity. In other words, Jesus came that we might have our best life now. If they have some proof texts ready to back this up, for example, John 10, verse 10, Jesus said to his followers that he came that they may have life and have it abundantly. <clears throat> so God wants us to live in abundance. Because of the cross, they teach that material prosperity is now your divine right. You are entitled to it if only you would claim it. This includes financial prosperity, as Joel Osteen teaches, quote, If you are struggling financially, then you have not got the victory. God didn't create you to be average or poor, end quote. Jesus came that that we might have access to heaven's storehouses right now. On the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, what did he mean? Did he mean that the full payment of sin was finished, the way to God was open as the veil was torn from top to bottom in the temple? No, rather, Osteen says that when Jesus died, low self-esteem was finished. He says mediocrity was finished. Jesus was opening up the way for you to have a full and abundant life. This abundant life also includes physical well-being. Doesn't the Bible say Jesus carried away our diseases? God doesn't want his people to be sick or weak. It is not his will anymore for you to be sick. Rather, as, as Kenneth Hagin teaches, quote, healing was in God's plan of redemption. If we are sick, it reveals that we have come short of God's will somewhere, end quote. So believers are entitled to perfect health. There's much more to this teaching, but you can see what's going on here. They've shifted the primary purpose of Christ coming away from the spiritual and the eternal to the material and temporal. He came not that we might have our best life next, but our best life now. One full of good health and wealth. Now, if this really was Christ's main purpose for coming, then what should Christians expect in following Jesus? Well, obviously, they they should expect Christianity to bring them bountiful health and wealth. If they believe in Jesus, they should come into money and all their illnesses should go away. But surprise, surprise, that's, that's not what happens. It's only a matter of time before these expectations are not met. For in reality, Jesus did not come to give us material prosperity in this life. These Christians, they don't strike it rich. Probably doesn't help that they keep sending their money to prosperity preachers. Also, sickness comes and it doesn't always go away. They get sick. They're not healed. They suffer greatly. And so what comes next? Disappointment. And after that, disillusionment. Some just outright leave the faith altogether as if Jesus has failed them. This is all very sad and very tragic. But this error can be traced back to getting the purpose of Christ's coming wrong. These movements have misunderstood or outright distorted the reason Jesus came. That's something we can't do. 
Why did Jesus come? Why did he die on the cross? What does that mean for us? Why are we following him? What should we come to expect being Christians in this life? If you want to avoid disappointment and disillusionment, you need to get these questions right. To do that, we need to turn to God's word. And thankfully, we have a passage this morning that will provide some helpful answers. Here we have a text that teaches and touches on the purpose of Christ's coming, but especially as it pertains to his healing ministry. This is really special and quite intriguing. Because here's a fair question to ask. If we say Jesus came to make atonement for sins, then why did he heal all these people? Why not just go straight from his baptism to the cross? Because that's where atonement was made, where our sins were paid for. Why not go straight to the cross? Why did he spend all this time walking around healing people? Yeah, we get why he taught. Why the healing ministry? What was the purpose for all of his healings? How do his healings relate to his work and death on the cross? How does that impact what we should expect today as Christians when it comes to our own health? Should we expect Jesus to give us good health? Let's see if we can find some answers. Matthew 8, 14 through 17 is the passage this morning. So far in Matthew 8, we've witnessed Jesus heal a leper, heal a centurion's servant. Now we have the third miracle recorded here, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law who was laid out sick with a fever. These miracles are not arranged chronologically, but rather thematically. Matthew is making a point as he shows Jesus care for a leper, a Gentile, and then a woman. Three classes of outcasts in Israel. The message is clear that Jesus came for the humble, the downtrodden, the sick. Remember when he said to the Pharisees, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. He wasn't talking about physical sickness when he said that, though, because he followed that up by saying, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Meaning he came for those who were poor in spirit. They would find his grace, whether they were lepers or Gentiles or women, whoever. Each of these healing episodes in Matthew 8 so far stands out in their own unique way. This third one is no different. Here, what makes it special is we finally get a glimpse at the purpose of Christ's healing ministry. Why was healing such a big feature in his earthly ministry? It didn't have to be, or did it? But actually, in his healing ministry and in our text, we gain further insight into the purpose of Christ's coming overall. And rightly grasping that is what sets our expectations right That's what we need. Something we need to do. So let's see if we can do that. Let's read now Matthew 8, 14 through 17. Matthew 8, verse 14. It says, when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. Excuse me. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet. He himself took away our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Don't mind me as I hide a cough drop in my mouth. That last verse especially 
is the key Matthew gives us, which unlocks the, the meaning, the purpose of Christ's healing ministry as it relates to his ministry overall. Before we consider that, though, we need to walk through these verses just so that we can behold yet again that the marvel of the Lord's power and authority. With a word, he can command all things, even a fever. So let's, let's witness his astounding healing ministry before we, we reflect on it. This text starts with this. First, <clears throat> a mother's need. Verse 14, a mother's need. It says again, when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. The setting here is still the city of Capernaum. According to John 1, verse 44, the, the original home of Peter and his brother Andrew was in Bethsaida to the north, but at some point they had relocated to Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Peter and Andrew joined James and John with their father Zebedee in their fishing enterprise. <coughs> Excuse me. Peter lived in this home with his brother Andrew, according to Mark 129. So two of them were together. Don't get the impression this was a bachelor pad, though, because we learned Peter was married. That comes from the obvious fact that the subject of this passage was Peter's mother-in-law. Last time I checked, you only get a mother-in-law one way, through marriage. And the Catholic Church doesn't like the fact that Peter, their first pope, was married. They suppose that Peter's wife had died by the time he was called as an apostle. But another nagging verse pokes a hole in that theory. 1 Corinthians 9.5. Paul says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, who is Peter? These verses indicate that Peter brought along his wife on his missionary journeys. She joined him as he relocated from Jerusalem to Rome as his home base. It's worth noting that the church father, Clement of Alexandria, recorded that Peter was married, had children, and he witnessed his wife's martyrdom in Rome. For now, we can say this was a full house. You have at least Peter, his brother Andrew, Peter's wife, Peter's mother-in-law. We know nothing else of Peter's wife, but given that Jesus had called Peter to follow him on his itinerant ministry, <coughs> excuse me, Peter would have been out of the home for long stretches of time. So surely Peter's wife was comforted that her mother was there with her. Surely it would have been extremely distressing for all of them when this mother got sick. Verse 14 tells us that when Jesus entered Peter's home, he found his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. This was not a chance encounter. Mark and Luke add that the disciples made request of Jesus on her behalf. They knew she was sick. She was getting worse. They knew Jesus could heal her. He's healing all these other people. Why not ask him to make a house call for one of his own? So they asked Jesus. He obliges. He comes to this house. It says Jesus sees her lying sick in bed with a fever. The phrasing is interesting. It's literally the word for throw in the passive. She was thrown down with fever. There's no mention of bed in the Greek. That's just implied that that's where you go when you're thrown down with fever. Today, we'd say she was laid out. We don't know the cause of her fever. Could have been malarial, which is a parasitic infection that results in high fever and shaking chills. We know that fever itself is not a disease. It's a symptom of disease. But when your fever gets high enough, it can be life-threatening in its own right. High fevers have 
miserable symptoms. Sometimes uh, you're burning up, you can't cool down. Other times you're freezing, you're, you're shaking so much, you're, you've got the chills. This leads to extreme exhaustion, dehydration, your body aches, every muscle, every joint is in pain. You, you know the feeling. You have no energy. If that high fever persists, talking in the 106 degree range or above, it can lead to hallucinations, seizures, loss of consciousness. If it persists in the 107 degree range and above, it can lead to brain damage or even death. We don't know the exact nature of her condition. Luke, the physician, says she was suffering. Given the urgency of this appeal, we can surmise this may have been a life-threatening fever. He might be opposed to taking medicine, but when people get desperate, when their life is on the line, they'll, they'll do just about anything. If your fever spiked to 106, I'm sure you're going to reach for those pills in your cupboard to bring that fever down. But in the ancient world, they had no such drugs. Home remedies would only go so far. You just had to lie in bed, suffer, and hope for the best. This is part of the reason life expectancy in the Roman Empire was about 40 years. If you made it past 40, you're doing pretty good. What can be done for this mother-in-law? Not much. But with Jesus around, something can be done. We find number two, a Savior's touch. From verse 15, a Savior's touch. Verse 15 says, he touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him. You'll notice first here how Jesus touches her hand. As with the previous two miracles, Matthew is emphasizing how Jesus broke Jewish tradition out of compassion for the suffering. Jewish tradition at the time stated that a man should never touch the hand of a woman, even to take money from her hand. It was also forbidden to touch anyone with a fever. (coughs) But from, from an unclean leper to an unclean Gentile, Jesus had no regard for man's traditions or prejudices. These were people made in the image of God, people made to suffer terribly under the curse. Jesus felt compassion for them. He touched them. He healed them. He touched her hand as if to let her know a compassionate Savior was there with her. Mark adds that Jesus raised her up as if to say, you've got no more reason to lie down. It's time to get up. Luke adds that Jesus rebuked her fever. We learn with the leper, Jesus healed just with a touch. With the centurion's servant, Jesus healed just with a word. Here with the mother-in-law, maybe it's a combo of both. Clearly, though, Jesus had the power and the authority to heal any sickness in any manner he chose. And instantaneously, that fever left. This was a miracle. Her temperature instantly dropped from 105 or or whatever it was down to a perfect 98.6. The underlying cause, whatever it might have been, was also remedied. Every one of her symptoms instantly vanished. The muscle fatigue, the chills, the joint pain. She felt brand new. This is the shortest miracle account Matthew records. Very few details here, but it is just as miraculous as all the others. Because we once again see Christ's total power over all kinds of illnesses. Though this episode is brief, just just try and imagine what it, it would have been like. You know the feeling of being laid out with sickness. You know that the misery of that high fever or that bad flu or whatever it is, just every inch of your body aches. There's nothing you can do. Maybe for some of you, if it once it's gotten so bad, part of you wonders, like, 
is this it? Is this the end? But just imagine what it would be like to have the Savior come in the room, grab your hand, pick you up, and just say, be healed. And just instantly, every symptom is gone. Every pain is gone. Every bad feeling is gone. And not just healed, you feel like a million bucks. It's like like time to run a marathon. What would you do if that happened? How would you respond? I hope you would be like that one leper from Luke 17. Luke 17 tells of a time where Jesus was passing through Samaria. He encountered 10 lepers, a little leper colony. And he cleansed all 10 lepers at once. <clears throat> but upon being healed, only one of them came back to thank him. And Jesus said this, Luke 17, 17. He says, were there not 10 cleansed? But the nine, where are they? <clears throat> was no one found who returned to give glory to God except the one. All too often, we can be like the nine. We, we take for granted God's manifold mercies in our life. Just think of all the good things the Lord has done for you. Do you give him thanks? Do you, do you return to give him glory often? Whether you are healed in response to prayer, whether you find favor that you were asking for, whether it's just for your own salvation, we need to make sure we are like those who return, give thanks, give glory to God often. For those who know the Savior's touch like this, it then becomes their joy to serve the Lord. Just out of an overflow of love and thankfulness, they're happy. They're delighted now to give their lives to serve their Lord. And that's what Peter's mother-in-law does. That's what she shows in her response. It says in verse 15, she got up, she waited on him. This is how she's showing her thankfulness. It also serves to show in our text that she was healed completely. There's no more reason for her to be in bed. She's fully back to normal. Time to get up. My own mother just had a health scare. She had a mass in her lungs, needed to get a biopsy. That biopsy resulted in a collapsed lung. So she's in the hospital for a few days. She's then discharged. She's okay. Sent to home to rest and recover. So we went down for a bit to help out. During that time... Well, she's recovering. If she tried to get up and, and serve us or wait on us, we'd be like, what, what do you think you're doing? Just sit back down, lay back down. You're recovering here. We'll take care of you. That is not how it worked for those who were healed by Jesus. There's no recovery time. His healing was not gradual like it is through medicine or through our immune system. It was immediate. And it wasn't partial. There's no lingering side effects like I'm dealing with right now. It was complete. With his power, just it's the same power that created the world out of nothing. Jesus could recreate the conditions of perfect health in a person's body. And, and it wasn't even hard. And being fully restored, Peter's mother-in-law was then happy to practice some ancient Near East hospitality and show, uh, wait on her guests, show some service to her guests. There was legitimately no reason for her to take it easy to slow down. There's no reason. She was as good as new. And just imagine that. Now, news of this healing likely spread. The report of Christ's marvelous power was getting around. And people seemed to know that when Jesus was in town, he could be found at Peter's house. And so a short time later, we find that the whole town pretty much has gathered at their doorstep looking for the Savior's touch. And that leads us to number three, a town's hope. Number three here, a town's hope from verse 16. 
It says, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were ill. Verse 6 starts by noting that evening came. And that's not incidental. Matthew abbreviates his account. He's leaving out some minor details that aren't relevant to his purpose. One of those details is that right before this healing, Jesus was in the synagogue teaching, which means this took place on the Sabbath. Jesus taught in synagogue that day, which was on Sabbath. And then later he cast out a demon. News of that incident spread throughout town. Evidently, everyone knew Jesus was staying at Peter's house, but it wasn't until evening that they sought him out. That's because the people, they were still held captive to the traditions of the religious leaders. And those man-made rules made them afraid to even seek out care and healing on the Sabbath. They were just in fear in their homes. But when evening came, Sabbath was over. That's when they all went out to go find Jesus and hear and seek the healing they heard about. And I'm talking literally, Mark adds that the whole city gathered at their door. This makes perfect sense because, again, we all know the desperation of sickness. Just think of that, that last time you were really sick or injured. You know that the desperation of wanting to be healed. People will fly across the country to find the best doctor. And you can't blame them. Suffering makes people desperate. And all these people who showed up at Peter's house that evening were desperate. But they did not have the option of flying to find better care. They couldn't even go to a hospital. They had no hope. They just were suffering without hope. That is, until they heard these rumors about Jesus, he gave them hope. And that hope was not misplaced. Verse 16 says that as they brought to him all who were ill, Jesus healed them. And Luke makes explicit that Jesus healed every single person who came to him that night. No one was turned away this evening. No insurance provider information was needed. You didn't have to fill out any paperwork, no copay. Just one by one, by his divine power, free of charge, he showed compassion on all these lost and sick people and healed every single one of them, banished every illness you can think of that evening. Now, Matthew, you can see here, focuses our attention on many who were demon-possessed. In the New Testament, sometimes it appears certain physical afflictions were caused by demonic oppression, while others were not. We're not given eyes to see the difference. You, you see that agitated person by the side of the road, yelling at themselves, strung out. You probably wonder, is that drugs? Is that mental illness? Is that demonic oppression? And we don't have eyes to see. But Jesus did. He could see and identify them immediately, and then he could cast them out with a word. <clears throat> the Jews had their own exorcists at the time. They understood evil spirits existed, and some claimed to be able to get rid of them. But they all relied on gimmicks, on tricks. Some used magical objects. Some employed incantations, spells, you might say. Others used smells, hoping to, to draw the demons out through the person's nostrils. But they're all phonies. None of them had any real power. <coughs> Jesus, though, was different. He was set apart with nothing but his word. He speaks, everything on earth obeys. This, the wind, the waves, the sea, sickness, demons. That's the point here. When he speaks, everything obeys. 
he was able to free those afflicted by evil spirits. And his success rate was 100%. Now, in past weeks, we've reflected on how this display of Christ's authority should lead us to listen to him and to follow him. He, he speaks, we should obey. In future weeks, we will see more of how his authority extends over the unseen realm. As chapter 8 ends with, with a notable episode of Jesus casting out demons. We'll learn a lot more about that at the end of the chapter. But in this present text, Matthew is setting our eyes on the bigger picture. He's showing us here and unveiling that the bigger purpose behind all of Christ's healings and how it, we'll see how it relates to the purpose of his coming. And so now we can turn to number four, a prophet's word. And this is verse 17, a prophet's word. He says in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now, this one verse is, is, I'm guessing, more significant than you think. It's only found in Matthew, but it just so happens to be one of the main proof texts the health and wealth movement uses to support their position that God wants all believers to be healed. It is his will for you to be healed. If you don't have it, something's wrong with you. You're outside of his will. Here, Matthew is quoting Isaiah 53, verse 4. They add to that Isaiah 53, verse 5, where it says, by his scourging, we are healed. They take that to be physical healing. So they believe that in the atonement, Jesus was procuring for us physical healing. And it belongs to us right now, if only we would claim it. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. This verse is bigger than you think. It's, it's going to take a good amount of time to study it, to cut it straight, to explore it. I don't want to shortchange it. So right now I'm going to set it up and we're going to come back next week to knock it down and to answer all of our questions and flesh it out. Doing this for a couple reasons. One, first, you know, I made a game time decision last night, this morning. I figured with my cough flaring up, I need to cut it short, not push it. I'm glad I did. Don't want to, don't want to push it here. But second, I'm really thankful being sick last week. It gave me an additional week, really, to, to think on and, and study this passage. And I tell you what, there's so much more here to show you. There's, there's a ton I want to explore. Unpacking this relationship between Christ's atonement and our physical health. And I guarantee there's more there than you probably ever thought. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe because of Christ's atonement, I should have claimed power over my cough and received healing. Am I simply of too little faith? Is that what the scriptures teach? I guess that's yet to be seen. You'll definitely find out next week. For now, let me set this thing up. So, reflecting on the healing ministry of Jesus, Matthew here in verse 17, he's choosing to insert some of his own commentary as an inspired author. He's drawing this connection between Christ's healing and messianic prophecy. <coughs> Christ's healing ministry, it was not accidental. It was not incidental. It was purposeful. He healed on purpose. One big purpose was to fulfill scripture. So, Matthew says, you see the connection of verse 16, verse 17. End of verse 16, he healed all sorts of people. 
Verse 17, this was in order to fulfill scripture. This word fulfill is one Matthew uses quite often to connect the dots between the life of Jesus and Old Testament prophecy, showing beyond a doubt Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But we can ask now, like, what, what did the healing ministry of Jesus fulfill? Well, specifically, he quotes Isaiah 53, the most significant messianic prophecy in the entire Old Testament. We have time, so let's go ahead and turn there briefly, so you can see it yourself at least to begin with. Isaiah 53. <clears throat> Thank you for being patient with me. Angel has joked over the past week, and I don't blame her. It's the most annoying sound, just like a double cough that doesn't go away, and I don't blame her. I, I, I feel the same thing. Like I got to quarantine a little bit. Isaiah 53. This is one of the servant songs of Isaiah, which depict Israel's Messiah as a servant. But things really take a turn in chapter 53, because here is where we learn above all that this servant figure will be a suffering servant. Not just a victorious conquering servant, but a suffering servant. He'll be, verse 3 says, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. This whole chapter depicts the suffering of God's special servant. But verses 4 through 6 really encapsulate it. Let's just read that for now. Isaiah 53 verse 4. It says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, when you read these verses, the purpose of the Messiah's suffering is very clear. Why is he suffering? It's for sin. Verse 5, he's suffering for transgressions. Verse 6, he's suffering for iniquity. So it goes throughout the whole chapter. He's suffering for sin. It is equally clear he's not suffering for his own sin. He's suffering for our sins. So verse 5, he's pierced for our transgressions. Verse 6, the iniquity of us all fell on him. Throughout the whole chapter, that's how it is. There are few clearer passages in the whole Bible that show how the Messiah would die as a substitute sacrifice for sins. Substitute sacrifice for sins and sinners. But now here's the question. question. How is Matthew connecting Isaiah 53 to Christ's healing ministry? It's clear that's what he's doing. You know, back in Matthew 8, Verse 16 ends with this summary statement. Jesus healed all who were ill. And then verse 17 begins with a purpose clause in the Greek. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah. <clears throat> so in the mind of Matthew, as Jesus healed, he was fulfilling Isaiah 53. But that should give you pause. Because wait a second. You read Isaiah 53, the whole chapter. It does not appear to be about the healing ministry of the Messiah at all. It's clearly about the atonement the Messiah brings. He's suffering for sin, spiritual sin. 
So, but Matthew's pointing at the connection with his physical healing ministry. What gives? What, what is the connection? Is Matthew trying to tell us that on the cross, Jesus, the suffering servant, was literally, literally carrying away our diseases? That he secured our physical healing in the atonement? Our faith healer is right. Should we expect good health following Jesus? If not, what is Matthew trying to say? What is the real relationship between Christ's atonement and our physical condition? These are huge and really very important questions. I'm not going to answer any of them now. Remember, I warned you at the beginning to lower your expectations. But again, I'm actually very thankful seeing God's hand of providence at work. Being sick last week means now we get to spend a whole sermon next week fleshing out this relationship between Christ's atonement and our physical condition. We often think of the atonement, how it pertains to our spiritual condition. It gets all our attention. It shouldn't. There's a lot to say about the relationship between the atonement and our physical condition. The answer may not even be what you think. It might surprise you. Make sure you come back next week to hear that. For now, though, as we finish up, let's not take for granted what we have learned this morning from Matthew chapter 8. Though it's a familiar lesson, let it not fall on deaf ears or dull hearts. And and from Peter's mother-in-law to the whole town gathering at his door, we're reminded again that our Savior has all power. He possesses all authority. That authority extends over things above, things below. Things on earth, things in heaven. Things seen, things unseen. That includes unseen viruses, unseen spirits. His authority is over all. He has all authority, all power. And this Savior is a healer. We've yet to do a full-fledged study on the Christian's expectation of health in this life. But I can tell you something we, we all already agree on and know. That a day of perfect health awaits the believer. Whether you get it in this life or not, in the resurrection, we will have bodies that will never again know sickness. Think about that. Do do you ever think about that? We are made body and spirit. Both will eventually be fully redeemed and restored. One day we will never again know that. Just think of all of you right now, your aches, your pains, your diseases, your nagging injuries, your chronic illnesses. I'm certain something came to all of your mind. You all have something. But in that day, at the very least, in that day, all of the first things will have passed away. And we will owe the glory of our redeemed souls and our redeemed bodies to this Savior and his work. So for now, at least, let us long for him. Let's long for the day when he brings that hope to us in full. Let me just finish by reading Philippians 3, 20 through 21, which which repeats this hope. We're told that our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That power we've witnessed this morning from Peter's mother-in-law to the whole town. That power we've already tasted and seen in our own salvation. We long for the, the, the end of it. Let us make sure for now we are those who return to him 
to give thanks, to give him glory often. Let's do that now. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks and glory today, and we, we pray and ask you to help us to do it often, that we would not forget or take for granted your manifold mercy to us. Above all, we thank you for our salvation, that Christ, the suffering servant, has come, certainly has made atonement on the cross for our sins. But we've yet to, to study and reveal in your word what we can expect physically. We know, and we can say, no matter what happens to our bodies, it is well with our souls, because the Savior had died on the cross, paid for our sins, rose again, and we have uh, forgiveness now and eternal hope uh, for the future. Thank you for the Savior. Thank you for, uh, beyond our salvation, just our life, our breath, even the good health that we do have, that we should not take for granted for any day under the sun. Our days are numbered by you. Whichever day, you, uh, however many days you give to us, may we live them thankfully, joyfully, and then like Peter's mother-in-law, in service. Now, how can we not repay you, but just honor you? How can we give you, show you glory and thanks by serving you, serving your people? So uh, move us to a thankful, a thankful driven service and just lives lived for your glory till the day Christ comes and finishes our transformation. It's in his name we pray. Amen.